You're listening to the Back Pain Podcast, episode 116. Today we're coming at you from the BCA conference, talking to chiropractors who work in sports and how sports chiropractic relates to you and your back pain. Let's go. Okay guys, episode 116. We've got rather a special episode for you today. Uh, This episode of the Back Pain Podcast was recorded live at this year's British Chiropractic Association Conference, the BCA. The Homecoming was its name, which took place in Birmingham at the beginning of November. This year's BCA conference saw over 300 members, GPs, physiotherapists and other MSK specialists, sponsors, exhibitors and chiropractic students coming together for the first time since 2019 to showcase the BCA's vision for chiropractic to be integral to UK healthcare and to celebrate its mission of being the home for chiropractors who put patients first. The BCA conference saw the launch of the BCA patient charter within the healthcare community. Now, the patient charter is part of the BCA's brand repositioning project, which has played a pivotal role in the changing healthcare landscape for the better since it launched last year. The product is the most far-reaching consultation in the BCA's 97-year history. The patient charter is a pledge from BCA chiropractors to their patients, which provides reassurance and transparency and reiterates a patient-centred approach to care which sets BCA chiropractors apart. The patient charter is now proudly displaying in members' clinics all around the UK and abroad for patients to see every day and to be reminded of the quality care they'll receive in the hands of a BCA chiropractor. The BCA have codified the very central and reoccurring promises made by any professional clinician to create a vehicle for the BCA chiropractors to provide their patients with uh, reassurance that they are regulated, credible, evidence-informed, ethical experts working within the modern healthcare sector. You can find your nearest BCA chiropractor on the British Chiropractic Association website chiropractic-uk.co.uk. Today was rather an interesting one. We interviewed uh, four chiropractors who all work within high levels of sports. The main thing is to see how this pertains, how this um, translates to the people off the street with back pain or anyone who plays sports regularly with back pain. We treated this like a panel discussion and we recorded it um, for the podcast. I think we got some really fantastic insights and it was actually an episode that we really, really enjoyed doing. If you enjoy it, let us know. I think we'll end up doing more panel type discussions in the future. I hope it gives you some great value. So without further ado... Episode 116, Top Level Chiropractors Working Within Sports and How That Relates to You and Your Back Pain. Here you go, guys. Here's me and Rob live. Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Okay, welcome to the first ever live episode of the Back Pain Podcast. We're delighted to be hosting this episode live from the BCA conference at the NEC, where we've got a show dedicated to chiropractors working within the field of sports. Joining myself and Robin Dave, we have four fantastic chiropractors who all have experience working with athletes in many different capacities, two of whom you may recognize from previous episodes as well. Okay, panel, what we'd like you to do is introduce yourselves for the listeners, please. We're going to start down the end. Shane. Hi, I'm Shane Lawler, sports chiropractor from Ireland. Uh, my background would be known as, uh, well, my acronym on social media, a Golf Cairo. So I was lucky enough to spend 10 years in professional golf, traveling for 25 weeks a year. Um, in private practice, I see golfers, amateur golfers, Gaelic footballers, basketball players, every sport, and then Joe Soap. Love it. Mel? 
Morning. My name is Mel Davis, uh, or Mariel Davis, whichever you want to choose. Um, I'm a uh, Brighton and Hove-based chiropractor. Apologies for my voice. Um, I work a lot in athletics, at athletics events, um, both nationally and around the world as well, um, and recently worked at the Commonwealth Games, um, the first one of which chiropractors were working at. Um, I'm also the secretary to the Royal College of Chiropractors Sports Faculty. Fantastic. Rob? I am Rob Crowley. I'm originally from uh, the United States, Chicago. Um, I practice in Norwich. I have a small practice inside a CrossFit gym. Um, so I see a lot of CrossFit athletes, weightlifters, uh, and so on. Uh, my background in sports, initially, I've been practicing about 20 years. Initially, right out of school, um, I was working with an orthopedic surgeon, and um, he had six American high school teams, uh, football teams, um, that he uh, was the team doctor for. And obviously, it can't be at the same place, uh, six different places at the same time on Friday, Friday night lights. So he asked me to start covering games for him. Uh, so I had about five years' experience uh, on side, uh, pitch side, um, as a as a physician. Um, so in the state of Illinois, uh, chiropractors are considered physicians, um, and American high school football games in our state, it was a requirement that physicians had to be on site for. Uh, American high school uh, football um, due to head and head and neck injuries mainly um, and uh, started doing that um, and then moved to the UK um, and started working uh, more local uh, non-league football um, worked for a few teams there um, and ultimately I, I got into CrossFit um, and I for four years I was uh, the clinical lead at uh, CrossFit regionals uh, so two years in Copenhagen and two years in Madrid um, so we had an interdisciplinary team of chiropractors, osteopaths, massage therapists, sports therapists, etc. Um, so um, treating CrossFit athletes. And I forgot, I'm a lecturer at London South Bank University for the last approximately two years. Just casually drop that in there. Donna. Hi, my name's Donna Strachan. I graduated 2001 from the AUCC and started working with the EIS in 2009. So the EIS. Um, look after our Olympic and Commonwealth athletes. I work with them for a lecturing and consultancy capacity and uh, then through that was my introduction in sport. Um, I've done work with England Rugby, British Athletics, England FA, uh, dressage, skiing uh, and ballet, quite a lot of different sports but always in sort of a consultancy capacity. Um, but I'm working at the moment uh, in Championship Rugby. I'm embedded within the team and doing pitch side. So that's, you know, we have to be RFU, FISIS accredited to do that. So uh, that's kind of cool. I did the uh, London 2012 Olympics. I was at the uh, AVL in London and then did the Baku European Games in 2015 um, in the Athlete Village. Um, so, yeah, that's my history, I guess. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us and taking time out of your, you know, Sunday morning at this conference to come and talk to us. So if I start from the end, if I take it over to you, Shane, you know, experience working with athletes, is working with athletes different? You know, so if you have an athlete with back pain um, or an injury compared to so-and-so walking off the street, are they different to manage with an athletic injury or do you treat them the same as, you know, Joe Public walking off the street? Depends on the athlete. <laughs> Depends on sport. Um, the hand I think athletes are easier to work with in general. And for a simple fact is they know where their body is in space and they have a demand over that. They're really, really good at getting around their physical limitations. They're not that they're necessarily a better physical specimen, they just know how to move around there. Um, and they, they adapt much quicker. So if somebody that sits at a desk all day, their movement cap capacity, movement ability is not what it needs to be. So it takes a lot longer to train them in terms of that. Um, I'm lucky in golf I didn't have to meet too many egos, so it wasn't really an issue. They're very easy to work with. They're human beings in the end of the day. So is it like their, their understanding of their body? So the way they're kind of, if you're telling them to do an exercise or do a movement, their kind of general body awareness, yeah, and is their, that better? And their, their adaption to manual therapy. They okay. respond really quickly. Oh, really? Now, you probably, in terms of the elite athlete, you're going to do less. So finding that therapeutic dose of what they can do in terms of manual therapy, whatever your input is, or corrective exercise or movement you need to be really good at figuring out how much they can they can take some athletes won't want to be manipulated before a big event some yeah do it right now i'm going out to play ready to go yeah 
So then, Mel, do you find that, you know, in terms of the injuries that you see, you know, if you're seeing someone pitch side, you know, at the Commonwealth Games, I know you've worked at, are the injuries very similar as well? So actually what they're physically coming in to see you with, or is it more kind of emergencies, or is it more just generic, normal back pain like you'd see in clinic? Um, I think in sport, you're less likely to see that uh, classic low back pain type of patient, because that type of patient is often under exercising they're not doing enough whereas athletes if anything they're probably doing too much um but conversely they're very very invested in getting better and they will do whatever it takes they will listen to your recommendations and they will really really do it um the injuries i guess as a chiropractor you're more likely to see soft tissue injuries um versus spinal or or joint complaints i mean historically where i've been working in athletics that's a non-contact sport so therefore you're going to see those those muscle strains those tendinopathies those muscle injuries more more than any sort of impact traumas that you would for example in rugby yeah and so, Rob, obviously you've then kind of seen the more orthopaedic side of it if you're working kind of pitch side, seeing more neck and spinal stuff. Is that quite high pressure? You know, if you've got, you know, I guess a young kid as well in some environments, you know, potentially with a spinal injury and um, you're there, you're the consultant physician right there. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, extremely high pressure. Um, in terms of you're in front of about, you know, you're going on the pitch in front of about 3,000 people. Um, you have their parents uh, there who are obviously concerned. Um, but at the same time, I think you're centered on the patient at that time and you sort of not think about those things. Mm. Um, but in the U.S. at the American, uh, in American football, you have uh, athletic trainer to support, so they're doing the, the initial uh, screen. Um, you have ambulance there uh, if necessary. Uh, you have the physician from the other team there. Um, so you have a, a large team to lean upon uh, a little bit. Um, and having all the resources there at any given time uh, is, is comforting as well. So, Don, obviously, working with athletes, you know, whether that's you know, rugby players and you know, ballet, ballet, say ballet players, ballet dancers, you know, the, do you find that there is more woo, if you call it that way, within, within the athletic population? Because you know, there's a lot of, oh, Ronaldo had that, you know, that specific injection, it really helped him. Do people come to you with that, saying, oh, that's the most expensive treatment, this footballer had it, so I need it? You know, compared to Joe Public, they often don't really, might not be aware of said treatment. Yeah, um, to be honest, I haven't experienced a lot of that in uh, in my in my contact with athletes. Um, I think all the individuals that I'm looking at are looking at getting gains. And I would say that, you know, they would undertake anything that will give them improvements. Um, but when I'm in there in a consultancy role, so normally my role is I'll go in, there will be an identified issue with a player or an athlete and my my favorite kind of scenario is where I've got the physio or the doc or both there and it can be like right this is what the problem is this is what we're looking for as an outcome and I've got quite a specific remit to deliver on um, and then that's my rule and then we discuss about you know what intervention we undertook and how they would progress that further I think the one thing that I would say about the difference, like a big difference for me, I agree with everything that's been said, but the biggest difference for me with uh, lumbar spines with regards to athletes is, you know, not so much the treatment that you would undertake. Um, that for me, there are a lot of similarities and I see a lot of spinal pain in sport as well as other injuries. Um, but, you know, for I'm the one that tends to get given the spines, which I love, um, but it's more the level that you're delivering them back to. So, you know, with the patient in clinic, you know, the level that you're getting them back to maybe running or maybe playing with their children, whereas with the rugby forward, we need to make sure that they can undertake tackle scenarios, that they can, you know, do twist, turn, take impact. So our testing to get them back to a play scenario will be different. Um, and that's so like that that high end level that we're looking for is is you know our, our outcome testing for athletes is definitely much higher uh, than than for your regular patient. So what is that outcome testing? So if you've had someone with you know a, a regular back pain, whether they're a prop forward, a rugby player, yeah, compared to well I'm feeling fine now, but are yeah. they ready to go and you know run into another 120 kilo person? Exactly. How do you test that? So okay, so. 
Well, I'll give you, how about I give you a guy down the club uh, last week um, who has been off with a disc injury. Uh, so first of all, we have to get clearance from orthopaedics. Um, so he has to go back to the surgeon and uh, the surgeon has to clear him based on follow-up follow-up scans um, when we have that clearance we can start to we have obviously been doing treatment rehabilitation in the background and then yeah we had a really uh, great uh, consultation with our SNC we've got a fantastic SMC for uh, from Liverpool uh, John Moores um, so it's like how do we get a neck ready for a prop because he's prop forward situation so uh we can do um though we did like the mauling techniques a lot of mauling techniques uh we did discuss like frog stands and things like that but you know we have to what's a frog stand so frog stands where you you know like your hands on the floor head on the floor and then you get your uh, knees up onto your elbows but we have to look at what's appropriate for the individual like if they hurt themselves doing rehab that really looks bad um so so it's trying to get exercises that will give impact stress on them yeah. in a more controlled environment leading up to, because obviously in a game, it's very uncontrolled. And then we get them out. Uh, when he passed all those, um, we got him out with the tackle bags and it is literally building up, and as in a take contact, hold contact, increase pressure, do repetitions of that, then take it at speed, then take it with force and then go down and go down controlled and then go down uncontrolled yeah. can you do all of that if we can pass you through all of that then you can get back on the field of play you know it's there's not a rule written for it but you have to make an effort to make sure that you know you don't put these guys at risk and we do as much as possible to match up their rehab and outcome testing to the scenario that they're going to be exposing themselves to physically. So it's quite a similar increase and in gradual graded exposure that we might see with someone in the clinic when we're looking at picking up shoes or bending down to a chair but just plus 120 kilograms of muscle and, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. a bit of perturbation and yeah exactly you, you break it down you look at what the individual can do you look at what they need to be able to do and then you know you've got to bridge that gap and sometimes you know more so potentially in clinic you would do that in smaller increments um and it, the biggest difficulty is is trying to increase things like perturbation and impact in a controlled way um but you know axial loading on the spine is is tricky you know because you know peripheral loading through muscles like through weights and you know we can do that and do that in quite a controlled way and then you've got all your running and axial decel and changing directions but when we start to put impact in the the other players are what you need effectively and they're very good at working with one another because I am not standing in front of a, a prop forward with a with a tackle bag, <laughs> you know. Going. So you know, we start them high, we then drop them low, and and they build it up. And often the players will come up with with ideas as well, um, get them into situation. You know, have have you know push in from either side. Is that resistant? And every time check in, are you comfortable? Are you comfortable? Is everything okay? No problems. And then we'll do like outcome strength testing, like manual muscle testing, just to make sure that they haven't inhibited or downregulated. And uh, yeah, try and match the situation as, as best we can. Fantastic. Um, so in these situations, you're the clinical lead. You've got to take these athletes and um, uh, create a, a positive effect. Uh, Shane, have you ever come to come to blows or comes come at odds with an athlete who wants a particular style of treatment? Perhaps they've they've seen it or heard about it, like Rob said, from a, another athlete, and you know that's not best for them. Uh, how do you tackle that situation? Depends, uh, not directly, but sometimes it depends what their physio might be doing at home, physio or chiropractor at home. Mm. Try and match it to it, but usually they're pretty, they're pretty adaptable in terms of what they're going to. to I haven't had any like the, there was a big. I, I'm a big Man United fan. Roman van Persie tore a hamstring and then he travelled over to Serbia for horse placenta treatment. I mean, patients come in and are like, oh, look at that. But sportsmen. <laughs> there was a talk by uh, a leading expert in ankles during COVID. And it was funny, there was a throwaway comment in it, nobody picked up on it, but he said, they, it was for um, Taller Dome injuries and uh, um, uh, avascular necrosis, and they were injecting things they would inject into a horse. He said, well, if it's good enough for a, a racehorse, we're going to put it in. But he didn't give any real reasons of terms of why the, 
why they would actually inject the... So sometimes sports medicine's a little... It's not right or wrong, but research is going to take time to go behind it in terms of... Like Donna said about the neck, they've measured... Uh, when I was doing my master's, there was a great paper where they, they measured kids from the beginning of the season to the end of the season, and you're gonna, your body's going to adapt in a specific manner so the neck got bigger. And as good as rehab is in terms of if it's golf or, or, or CrossFit, you, it's very difficult. It's a very fine edge in terms of trying to get them up to the level that they're going to play in sport. Inevitably, they're going to have to go back and play the sport. And there's, they're going to have to... Uh, some of it's guesswork. Yeah. Yeah. You'll know the athlete. Yeah. But I, I haven't had any funny, like, oh, I want it done this way. I think if, you're, um, if your physician says, pass me your hoof, sorry, I'm an ankle, <laughs> um, it's probably a warning sign, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> So Mel, so you, you know, you've worked at the Commonwealth Games. I don't know if you've worked at the Olympics as well. You know, those type of you know multi-athlete big. You might might not have seen them before. If someone's coming to you and they've got you know potentially a gold medal winning race tomorrow, is that quite a nerve-wracking experience when they're like, "Oh, my ankle's a bit stiff. My normal physio chiropractor does this, and it always helps me, and I've got this you know big race of my life tomorrow." Is that quite a nerve-wracking situation, or is that something you just get used to from working you know years like we would in clinic? You get used to it because I'm a trained chiropractor. I work in these environments. They come in, if they're wanting to see a chiropractor and they tell you what they're used to chiropractic wise, you have to meet them halfway on that. You don't want to do anything too different. You don't want to risk um, doing something that they've not had before per se or go at it at too much of a different angle because psychologically that might affect them, let alone the risk of may be impacting their performance in a negative way. Mm. But interestingly, at the Commonwealth Games, people were coming in requesting to see a chiropractor. And when athletes request to see a chiropractor, that's because they have received good chiropractic care in their respective countries, but also they have an idea of what chiropractic is. And they expect you to to almost meet their idea of what chiropractic is. So then, therefore you have to have in your mind what you think they would have received in their respective country and, and meet them somewhere in that so that they feel that they're getting the care that they want as well as the care that they need. So exactly the same as we were with the patient is kind of meeting them where they're at and understanding what they want from treatment or what they expect from treatment and understanding expectations and that's a really good lesson for any students is finding out what someone expects when they come and see you if they're expecting x y and z and you do a b and c then immediately you are not going to build that rapport which we know kind of is so so important so exactly the same but i guess there's a difference in different countries as well whether it's no offense rob americans you know in terms of coming in with a more (laughs) (laughs) coming in with that kind of like oh i want a head to toe kind of you know big toe to neck crack type thing compared to uh, oh i wouldn't see a chiropractor for my neck pain before or whatever it might be, you have to meet these expectations. So, and then if someone's got a gold medal on the line, it's a bit, I know, I'd be pretty nervous doing that. I don't know about you. But, you know. <laughs> so Rob, obviously working in, you know, as you're a lecturer in the UK, a teacher in the UK, an educator for kind of the, the future chiropractors, do you think chiropractors at the moment, you know, graduating are prepared to work in that medical role? Or do you think that we need a more, you know, kind of, whether that's training, whether it is experience, you know, to kind of work straight from the outset, or do we have enough as it is? Um, I think... Uh, clinically, we, we, we prepare them well, or at least I, I like to think so. Um, I do think that a lot of it is just about yeah, getting the experience, getting the hands-on experience. Uh, I usually recommend to students that, of course, everybody wants to work in professional sport and they want to be Manchester United's chiropractor or, or, or what have you, but the best thing to do is just, just get involved in the grassroots and you'd be amazed as far as you know what, where that leads you um, in terms of contacts or you just might meet somebody someday and you know, they, they, they want you to come in. Um, but don't discount you know, that local football club or that local rugby club and, and so on. And, and it's a really great place to get that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Donna, have you come up against any barriers in the UK being a chiropractor? Um, any prejudices or, you know, that sort of, oh, you're, you're not a physio? Traditionally in the UK, that's been dominated by a physio's pitch side. Um, any, any issues previously there? Um, yeah, I think there are issues in that it's not the norm. And <clears throat> I don't think it's barriers in that it's prejudices. I think we're just less of a known entity. Mm. Um, I think that's 
perfectly reasonable. Um, and I think that's the onus is on us to put ourselves out there and make sure that when we do put ourselves out there, we do it in a positive way. And like for me, on a personal level, I've never experienced anything except really good stuff in sport. And I've always, you know, been... I, I, I do think it's very important to remember that you know when we are usually I think there's two different ways of looking at the chiropractic in sport you're either in a role where you are the autonomous practitioner which you know is usually more like your your local club or your cross level club or if you are working in an environment where there's a medical team so there's a physio or a doctor that's there and they've brought you in you know the responsibility of what you do will end up on them so you know you really like I've always really tried to go in and be like a positive person that is helpful for them um and you know you don't want to go out and they get a load of grief for bringing in that crazy person um so you know it's it's also really important to remember that we're in that environment I'm not the one that has any responsibility or any of the fallout so you know from a physio's perspective they could bring me in and I could do something positive and everybody would probably expect that to be the norm but I could also do something that was negative and then they would end up that with that responsibility so it's a little bit like well why would they bring in an unknown entity so I think the fantastic thing about chiropractic across the board is that our hands-on stuff is so so good our hands-on training is is brilliant and the results that we get in practice and for athletes go down so well and are really quite unique that's where our place in sport gets us in I think for additional to the other rules um uh, I'll just go a little bit back to your previous question if that's okay that uh there is quite a big gap between what we're taught clinically I believe in my experience to what you would require to work as an autonomous clinician in sport you know the the work with uh, the consultants and the medical doctors is quite intense and and knowing the level of orthopedics and scan results and post-surgical rehab we don't have the exposure to and neither do physios they would go on and do like an msc in sports and exercise the the rehabilitation levels the the clearance to play it's the whole thing of if an athlete comes in and they've had a niggly knee that week and you look at them and you go yeah you should be fine and they go out and play and they rupture their ACL so you know liability wise we need to make sure that we are qualified we need to have a little look I think at our insurance and see that we're cleared for that would you need to undertake additional training because physios who are in those roles would have done and then also of course you're not going to be able to do it anyway but I would say for anybody who's running pitch side do a really good pitch side course I mean the RFU physis one is insanely high level but there is um there are some really good there's lubus uh, there's a lubus pitch side immediate care and sport ones that are fantastic and will prepare you really well but that level of thing we aren't usually exposed to at an undergrad level um so I, a few extra steps. I, I everybody has to do those extra steps so it's not like do chiropractors have to do those extra steps it's everybody has to do those extra steps it's just yeah. making sure that we do those as well like we understand how it works in in the whole field i think it's a really important point because a lot of people you know whether they're working for me assume that the physios graduating know how to rehab an acl back to back to pitch side you know back to back to playing football and that's not necessarily the case they have to get that kind of extra you know experience knowing when someone's safe to return to play knowing that you know they're not they're not going to go back after six months you know after an acl replacement it's just no matter how good you are at rehab it's not going to happen. So well, it's just kind of... Well, my, yeah. my, my husband rehabbed it. Uh, he's a physio in sport. Yeah. And actually, there is... Okay, uh, I apologise. <laughs> that was very... Yeah, but six months, yeah, yeah. to the day for Olympics. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, oh, I know. That's amazing. But yeah, it's very... Yeah, it's high level. It's good. 
<laughs> so Shane, what about golf then? In terms of the extra training for golf, you know, because obviously the, the injuries you see, I'd imagine, oh. in golf are you know not going to be maybe I'm wrong, catastrophic in terms of the rugby. You're not going to see as many ACL ruptures or you know severe None. spinal injuries. Yeah, <laughs> kind of playing golf. Unless you're the, Tiger and you're doing silly stuff. Outside. Well, Tony Finau <laughs> dislocated his ankle after he got a hole in one. That's kind of the only thing I can think he of. Probably sprained playing basketball. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, in terms of those injuries, are they? I don't want to say easier to manage, but in terms of you don't have those catastrophic things. And maybe they're harder than when you don't have the catastrophic things. But you, do you need that? You know, as much extra training. What would you advise them for someone who wants to get? I into mean, it? I, w- I was lucky when I was hired. I had, a, I was finished ART, so my soft tissue skills were probably better than most of the people that applied, in terms of that. So I was mentored by Jesper Dahl, who's a BCA member, and uh, Dale Richardson. I, I had forty years' experience next to me. I was like a sponge. So I, was, I always had a little bit of a safety net, but I was in lucky role. I did it in the Thomas role. I got to do everything. We looked after everything, the manipulation, the soft tissue work, the dry needling, if they needed uh, blood work done, the sports medicine doctors there with us. So we had full control over everything. In terms of training for golf, it's, it's pretty simple. You don't have to be a golfer. Titleist Performance Institute run courses, um, level one, level two, three medical. Most golf injuries are chronic repetitive, so you're looking tennis elbows, necks, back. And when I was in, on the golf tour, I saw the players for an hour every day. So I knew when something was going bef- wrong. Well, if I was paying attention, you have to, yeah. like, you, you laser focus. You know when they were doing. The thing I was always picking up is when I needed to know if they were changing their golf swing. So the nightmare situation for me is mid-season, June, July, they've already beat a shitload of balls. And then they changed the coach. And you're like, oh, God, the four. So for me, it was a great learning experience because golf will hit you somewhere. The forces have to go somewhere. And then inevitably you're like, okay, they changed the golf coach. Where is their forces going to dissipate to? And they love beating balls. <laughs> I mean, I got to work for Patrick Harrington for 10 years, and he hit more <coughs> balls than most professional golfers. He just keeps. He says, Shane, I hit balls, and you, I break myself, and you fix me. <laughs> how, how many balls do they hit a day? What's a normal for a golfer? The junior, so I work with Ireland's Golf Ireland program and I looked at it in my master's dissertation and I asked a couple of the kids, some of them could hit 300 balls an hour. Wow. Oh my God. And bearing in mind, they already said, now there's not a pile of research, but anything more than 200 balls a week at a range, because it's an artificial surface, is going to lead to injury. And now these now. kids are, they're, adding, they're, they're, they're much stronger, so they're starting their S&C. 13, 14 years of age, there's the club head speed's gone. They're hitting, I mean, look at Bryson DeChambeau, very good example. Yeah. He bulked up, a lot of mass, speed went up, and it was not a case of when he was going to, it was when he was going to injure, not if, yeah. and then he had wrist surgery. And um, It's uh, Liam Hennessy, who's Padraig's head of fitness. Liam worked with Irish rugby, he runs the town of the college. He put a, a accelerometer, which they use in rugby for the tackling, uh, Padraig was up to about 6 G's of force now that's not 6 G's of force through a yeah. shoulder but it's 6 G's of force through the whole body so it will go somewhere that's incredible 6 G's of force that's yeah. huge what so at least they have good technique but our amateur golfers that you guys are going to see in clinic they've yeah. crap technique so it's yeah. not they, they will they, they'll go and be boss so generally from terms the one thing I learned from Liam and it doesn't matter if it's an amateur or professional athlete is load management mm. Mm. So it's how does like that case issue, you've got to figure out how many lifts they're doing, how many tackling they're doing, the tackling technique. They just released a systematic review on concussions for kids. It's scary, some of the stuff they're allowed. Mm. Um, talking about there, but uh, Rob in Chicago, there was a situation, I don't do pitch time. As, as my sons are getting older now, I'm going to go do the IRFUs, safe rugby, because I need to be at games. And sometimes the physios or the physical therapists aren't covered to cover pitch, but they're still mm. doing it. And that's allowed in Ireland in some sense until something goes wrong. And we had a situation this year where one of the players under 18, I wasn't at the game, I heard about it after, fractured the femur right in the middle, saw a pitcher, somebody sent it to me. He was waiting on the, on the pitch for an hour for the ambulance to come. We have a big issue in Ireland where terms, the ambulance stationed there, they could be drawn anywhere, but if that fracture had opened or gone through or hit his artery, he was done. Yeah, but also that's a that's a potential for massive hemorrhage <coughs> yeah. that you yeah. could you could you can lose a catastrophic amount of yeah. blood. That's a yeah, that's an mm. incredibly serious injury. And in terms of what Rob said there, we've a, look the young chiropractors graduating now are in a much better position than us. They're going into practice that are much fuller, and they're like, well, why do I leave my practice to go and do this, volunteer my time? 
you never know who you're going to meet along your journey. Mm. Your skill set will probably set you aside in some sense, but it's the networking. You never know the, the relationship. When I was brought into Rowing Ireland for six months, now it was a bit of a journey, but I was brought in because a friend of mine that I'd met in Italy, he knew the high performance director, and the high performance director brought me in as a chiropractor, and the physios were a little bit... <laughs> we, like I said, I talked to her on Zoom for an hour, and I was like, we're more alike than you think. So it's, it's perception. She assumed there's just going to be crack crack, and I was like, well, it's not going to be crack crack. <laughs> so we, we were helping each other in terms of the. Amazing. It's often quite a shock when we're talking to other therapists. The, the outcome's always the same. Oh, we're more alike than we think. And I think the best practitioners, yeah. Greg Rose says it for TPI, if you, sit in a, if you sit in a room, the best practitioners in the world, you shouldn't know what profession they're. Mm. Yeah. Hands down, you won't know. Because I've met some physio really good at manipulation, just to have good hands. They can feel, they can see, they observe. There's no magic to it, but they work on their craft. Yeah. And yeah. They, they'll see the success of being in rugby or CrossFit. No, no, not all the hours that started from, from where, where you graduated. And it, nothing comes easy now. And I'd really like the young graduates to just graft. It. It's not, you, it's luck it will be part of it, but if you graft and your skill sets get better year in, year out, yeah. and you're being mentored by people, and, and you're getting constructive feedback, and you take that on and work, and then you're going to be a good sports guy director. Yeah. Well, Shane had a couple of good points. Uh, first of all, yeah, mentoring. Um, so especially new grads, um, get that experience. And if you're part of a team, just, just be a sponge um, and try to learn as much as possible. Um, your chiropractic education will you know, provide you with the clinical knowledge. But yes, you, you need to get you know, the practical knowledge. But use the you know, knowledge of or the experience of the, of the people around you. That's very valuable. The other thing that Shane brought up is about load. The, the one trend that I've seen in my 20 years of practicing is uh, particularly kids are specializing in sports very early. Um, when I was growing up, and the U.S. is a little bit different because you're, you have seasons for sports generally. So I grew up in spring, spring and summer. I was playing baseball. I was playing uh, soccer, American football in the autumn. They might be playing basketball or ice hockey you know, during the winter. One of the nice things is they, they, they're not using the, the, the same things over and over again. Um, and they're, they're uh, going to uh, gain those functional skills. Um, whereas now, uh, I was quite surprised when I, I moved here and realizing that kids were being brought into football academies at pretty young ages. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, then they're spit out by the time they're 14, 15, 16 mm. years old. Um, it, having a variety of, uh, of different movement patterns is really advantageous mm. development of an athlete. And specializing early, yes, you get that repetition, but those repetitions lead to those mm. you know, overuse, repetitive strain injuries. So I try to, you know, if I have a, a kid who's, you know, might be a cross-country runner or a playing football or whatever, one of the things I recommend to the parents is get them involved in other sports and learn other skills. Hmm. Um, oh, cool. sorry. Okay. Uh, no, sorry, I was going to say, I completely agree with those points and I blame Malcolm Gladwell. It's the, <laughs> <laughs> it's the, it's the 10,000 hours thing mm. and what we all need parents to do is read Range by David yeah. Epstein. Be generous. And that's, yeah, exactly, 100% agree yeah. with this load and different muscle patterns uh, especially for kids because otherwise you do see this and gymnastics and dance are two of the worst that I see and actually swimming as well because these kids I mean however hearing the 300 balls in an hour <laughs> now clearly I'm thinking golf but you know these these kids are doing insane amounts of hours doing the same thing and it's you know it's not it's not going to be good for them wasn't that yep. one of the reasons um, Roger Federer had such a long career? Because he actually didn't specialise until he was in his late teens in tennis. We didn't start until he was like, I want to say 13, 14. I'm going to get that wrong, obviously. But yes, exactly. Yeah. I think we'll see a, a disin uh, uh, disintegration then of, of, like when we're looking at the long, the macro picture, in five or ten years, are we going to see this impacting sports down the line? Are we going to see players lasting... Uh, shorter mm, in their lifespans. Do you think that's going to be a, a common theme and almost reverse itself eventually? I think it's already happening. I think. Really? Yeah, Do you think so? 
I mean, they, look, they use golf, live golf. I mean, I had patients that don't even like golf that were asking about the Saudi-backed golf tour. And it's funny, the guys that win on there were either in the latter part of their careers getting the last pension payment, or it was guys... Cameron Smith's um, mental coach was on a podcast. His name is Joan Oliver, a very interesting guy. And he said that Cam isn't a golfer first. That Cam is a multi-million. He means a lot of money. He's a British Open champion or the Open, if we want to be technically, in terms of who wants to call it <laughs> what. But Cam prefers to drive and fish. Hmm. So th- those, those patterns, uh, they mightn't be athletes for it, but they're, they're probably going to give up. They're probably going to give up quicker. There'll probably be less of these next generation of golfers joining the Champions Tour because if they're chasing it for money or the parents are chasing it for money, they need to love the sport or inevitably they're just going to burn out. I guess that's, oh, Tiger Woods was another good example. You know, he was a, a very good basketball player, I think he was beforehand, and he came into the sport, you know, early 90s, mid 90s, as an athlete, as opposed to just a golfer. And he had those, you know, I know he had a lot of injuries as well, but, you know, his kind of, he was that first person to come in and really change the sport for that because he came in as a, not a golfer, you know, he came in as an athlete and it really showed that, oh, maybe we should go to the gym as, we're, as being golfers. And it kind of pushed people into kind of the next level, I believe. Yeah. Anyone else got any points on that? Around the sports specialization, because I had to read everything I could get my hands on in terms of the Masters. It's definitely bad, but we don't have rock science, rock solid evidence, because if you dig into the sports specialization, it's opinion pieces. Mm. You really dig into the references and they're hidden. It's a, somebody's opinion. But it makes sense to us, because you, if tissues are overloaded and they're not cross-training mm. against another sports, James Andrews in the States, world-renowned orthopedic surgeon down in the baseball pitchers. He gets the kids, parents come in, kids injured, draws up the, puts up a board, and most of them train like professional athletes. That's what he has to fix first. Yeah. And there's the scary thing in baseball, we don't have too many throwing sports in in the UK and Ireland, or Europe for that matter. The kids are preemptively having the Tommy John done. Yeah. They'll have it done in high school or ready for college. Preemptively? Preemptively. I'll take a year out of college, get the Tommy John done, I'm ready to go. Do you want to explain what a Tommy John surgery is? The under collateral, it's named after player, it's after player. Tommy John. Yeah, yeah. It, it was one, he was probably one of the first players there. The under collateral ligament, when they, when they cocked the shoulder back into full external rotation to go back behind them, the, the ulnar collateral ligament, which is in the middle part of the elbow, where your funny bone is, is probably the easier way if we're on a podcast now, so the funny bone area, um, that ligament stretched when they go into full, full cocking of the, and inevitably, you load it enough, it's going to weaken and, and the stability around the elbow is gone. And In other words, just we'll put more stability or just operate on and, and let mm-hmm. them throw away. At least in baseball now, they've that, it's, uh, is it more than 100 innings in a season? That's, yeah, that's highly predictable. Yeah, that's regulated. Yeah. Um, the problem is in baseball is you have, okay, so you have their high school season and then they'll have their, yeah, their yeah. club season. And that, rep- that repetition over and over again, it, it is managed, you know, in organized leagues, but a lot of uh, young baseball pitchers are seeing coaches. They're they're not deloading in the off season, and again, kind of specializing, you know, a little bit early. Um, and it's if you look on Instagram, I've, I I still follow baseball. That you just see these young pitchers with these coaches, and um, and the problem with with baseball pitching is their growth plates um, haven't matured. Uh, enough, so you might have a, a pitcher who's nine, ten years old, and they're, you know, they're uh, being taught how to throw curveballs and sliders, more off-speed p- pitches, and that's extremely stressful on the growth plates in the elbow. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, I think the other thing that's interesting to think about with with kids is that we don't do S and C typically with kids you know, at a younger age. And if you look at the age that they're doing, like Tate Gymnasts, you know, and you've got girls who are six, seven, eight, nine, ten, doing tumbles and taking impacts. And we don't do specific strength training with them because it's not the thing to do. Or, you know, and when I say that, I don't mean them, I'm not going to get them leg pressing down the gym. But, you know, when you talk about a core or a kin conditioning program for them and again if we look at what we know about different impacts from different movements and how much force is going through the body and then we look at the repetition and the loading that they're taking 
are we preparing children for that? And actually, could we look at doing that much better, particularly if it's a repetitive sport that they're doing, to try and balance them out and, and, and keep them keep them even but I agree with what Shane was saying is actually a big part of it is the parents and why the parents are doing it and I think unfortunately you do have a situation where it's you know whether the parents are doing it you know because they think that this will get the best results and it's you know maybe you know we need to look at the education of the coaches and the parents to explain that actually it's not going to be the best thing for that individual either long term for their sport or interest or for them individually as a human being you know ideally you don't want to come out of a sport a broken person <laughs> you know, you, it's not what we want and, and there's a fine line between uh, play and then mm. almost becoming a job mm. and children yeah. generally like to play sports because it's play yeah but that yeah when you when you start making them a professional too early it's just you know from a biopsychosocial standpoint it's not a, a good thing yeah very much so um mel we've seen chiropractors um uh, more and more prominent in some major sporting events recently we've had the olympics and then very recently the commonwealth games uh chiropractors have been working alongside other healthcare pr uh, practitioners within these multidisciplinary um uh, units do you think this is the way forward our, our big way into sports as part of this uh, multi-team of practitioners Absolutely. <clears throat> it is, I think, the preferred model moving forward. Um, what's been happening with the Olympics and, and more recently the Commonwealth Games is the decision makers that be at the LOCs, the local organising committees, but also the IOC as well, is that they're wanting a diverse musculoskeletal workforce. And the way they're doing that is um, they've created a model called COPS, COP stands for Chiropractic, Osteopathy, Physiotherapy and Sports Massage. And it's that model that provides a, a diverse range of musculoskeletal care to suit every athlete's need in MSK. So <clears throat> rather than historically just having physios doing everything, mm. by having the, the interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary team, you're covering all bases of what the athletes need, but also what the athletes want, similar to what I was saying before, athletes come in and they want to see a chiropractor they may have been training in america and they're used to having plenty of chiropractors on hand there they come over to let's say the uk or other countries that are doing uh, international events and there's no chiropractors there for them so the the locs realize that they they should be providing chiropractors they should be providing osteopaths if that's what athletes are expecting mm. and i think america has been a big part in that so to follow up to that, you know, we spoke kind of earlier around if we were, you know, all in a room where, you know, you shouldn't be able to separate the titles. You know, we're all doing the same thing for, this, for the same athlete in front of us. Do we need to have titles when we work for these COPS teams or should we just be there as a musculoskeletal therapist, musculoskeletal specialist, whatever, you, whatever title you want to call it? Or do we need to have those athletes? Who, yeah. If everyone's the same level, there shouldn't be a title. But inevitably, you can't specialise in everything. Yeah. You can't be... Like, if I'm looking at, I'll use a good example, feet. I've learned a shed load from Jesper, but Thomas Michaud, 70-something years of age, the guy is still learning, still reading research. So that's where I, there should be probably sub-specialities in terms of the things. So if somebody might be good with feet or knees, acid. you can't know all the rehab for every single joint in the body. And that's why orthopedic surgeons have one joint. I'm not saying you go straight into one joint, but at least you have to have some knowledge of it and it's nearly impossible, then you, could, you can't mould everyone to be exactly the same. Yeah. Also, further to what Shane was saying, it's our differences and working together with our differences that actually make us better. Yeah. If we were all the same, if we were all sort of a, a homogenous bunch of MSK practitioners, there's, there's less growth there, I think. There's less kind of healthy friction between different um, professions, which ultimately each profession grows by being exposed to other different professions, mm. other professional identities, mm. because there's no real unifying MSK um, uh, identity, if that's the right mm. word. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm not sure if I've said that correctly, but I hope yeah. you get the gist. Yeah, Rob. I, I have a little anecdote to, f to follow up on that. Um, my first year that I was at uh, CrossFit Regionals in Copenhagen, 
I was, uh, it was myself, uh, Lee Taylor, who's another chiropractor, uh, and physio. We were brought in by rock tape just to tape athletes, and that's all we were supposed to do. Um, and then, so they already had a team. It was massage therapists uh, and, and physios uh, providing a soft tissue treatment. And um, end of the first day, the Scandinavian athletes got word that we were chiropractors. And then they started queuing up, you know, to get treated by us. Um, the next year, um, I was uh, asked to be the clinical lead, to, to lead the team. And working with them for a number of years, we got to know each other. We, you know, uh, we visit each other. We, um, we, we still keep in touch and, and share not only, uh, you know, personal stuff, but uh, our, our clinical backgrounds. And, uh, yeah, there's not really... There are slight differences, but there's not much difference difference in what we do as as magnet therapists. But we could all you know learn from each other, and I think that yeah, sports, uh, you know, having this diverse interdisciplinary team, um, that ends up sort of permeating into you know the the general public, and that's the care that the patients want, and I like to treat my. Uh, general patients as, as athletes because everybody has their you know personal demands and personal things that they have to uh, to have the capacity for and tissue is not any different from an athlete to you know the average person and but the same techniques work or so like or like say somebody picks up their grandkid it's an yeah. extremely large grandkid you're talking 40 50 kilos you have to deadlift it yeah. Totally agree. We told like the one thing, and I think it was a physio. I, I don't know who to quote for credit, but we and somebody talked about it. We grossly underload our general population. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Well, I was wondering about that. You know, when you were saying about already having a sporting decline, <laughs> you think the next generation of kids, you know, that we're aware of, I don't know exact stats, but. You just think the level of deconditioning and then COVID as well, yeah. being at home and, you know, I know my husband coaches, I've got a seven-year-old and he coaches the, the under-8s rugby and he said, you know, they're, they're playing a game and thankfully our young man is fairly well uh, exercised, but he said they were playing a 10-minute game and he said they're not running all the time, but, you know, they're running a lot and he said the kids are just knackered by the end of it and he's like you know they really shouldn't be at seven years old you should be lagging it round for half an hour easily shouldn't you um so yeah that's going to be interesting i think what we're, what we're going to see now is i don't know the the other three in the panel i think my wife does a peds peds the young young kids yeah but i've seen more under 18 patients in the last not even to do with covid pre-covid they're starting to come in now i don't know if that's patients or the parent, the parents being wiser, but I think a lot of it's, it's their movement competency. They don't move well. They're mm-hmm. they're sitting under devices. They're they're not getting they're not getting outdoors. They're not playing. Some kids aren't playing sports. Their aerobic capacity is not where it should be. Um, but, but but if you think about it in terms of the two years to a twelve-year-old yeah. is a considerable yeah. amount yeah. of time. Yeah. And this is a time when they're supposed to be building that tissue tolerance, yeah. and they weren't able to. So yeah, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting in the next few years of what are we going to see in mm-hmm. terms of in our practices. So the last question, and before we go on to a couple of questions, if, if anyone's got any questions, have a think while I ask the last question. Um, if you know we're talking about the those kind of professional differences, you know, it's very good to have people with different skill sets. We learn from people. Should those professional differences be defined by our profession? So, you know, should we have chiropractors that are specialized in X or physios that are specialized in Y? Or should that just be interprofessional? You know, we have a chiropractor that's specialized in ACL management or a physio that's specialized in cervical radicular pain. You know, should, should we completely smear it or should we stick in, in our lane, if you will? I think we should have core skills um, and then reach out from that. So chiropractors, that would be spine manipulation doesn't mean that we can't do other things and doesn't mean that a physio can't do spinal uh, joint problems or manipulate but as the sort of core skill that that, that professional has mm. in my opinion Anyone else want to come on that? <coughs> um, yeah, I will if that's okay um, So I think it's useful to have a differentiation because I think that we are 
we are inherently quite different and I think particularly in physiotherapy physiotherapy is not very hands-on and is not being very hands-on moving forwards and I think that's very fundamental difference in how we treat as well as what we do and what a patient's expectation of us is um so for that I think it's very important for us to stay different I'd love for us to undertake more of the autonomy rules with upskilling because I think we're absolutely capable of doing that and I think that that really could happen Um, and I just think it takes more individuals to take it to that level that's something that I'm trying to do and uh, uh, but um, it's also a little bit not uncharted territory but we need to just make sure that things like our insurance and our competence and exposing yourself to all of the things that physios take for granted and know and we don't then I think we just have to ensure that we do it in in a in a considered and careful way but I think that would be great but no I I agree with Mal I, I like our differences and I think it's good and I agree with Shane that we can't all be experts in everything and also I don't really you know there are things that I'm not as interested in I I kind of think I don't know I get to the point where I kind of like I really love what I do and I kind of want to do that you know I see the headaches that physios you know when you say you autonomous for a professional team I also do I think the level of work and responsibility in that is seriously like huge and massive undertaking mm-hmm. and I think we sacrifice it's um like people don't see this sac- people like, don't see the sacrifice you're like. physio doing home and away yeah back oh. and forward back and forward all the hours yeah they're on call they're trying yeah. to go to sleep and some players having some issue with his with his girlfriend or boyfriend or vice versa with a female athlete they're cleaning up lots of stuff they're babysitters at the best of times in worst case scenarios so rather than creating a new amalgam profession, we should celebrate our differences while working together. Not unlike the Power Rangers, each individual <laughs> ranger's <laughs> skills and uh, difference, yet still coming together to form one team at the but end. We're not going to go exactly with the suits. I was going to say Paw Patrol, actually, but I'm clearly... Uh, yeah. Yes, I want a little mobile. The, the last couple of years have been quite interesting for me um, as I'm venturing into the world of academia. And my philosophy in terms of chiropractic education is, and this, this comes from you know, where I came from at National, and um, our school believed in um, educating to a broad scope, and then we can practice as narrow as we want. So through that, I got exposed to a lot of different things, and of course, some students chose you know, to go into pediatrics, some people chose to go into sports or whatever. But I think it's important that education's a broad scope. Um, the GCC is about to come out with um, uh, new education standards, which is going to be um, uh, you know, quite interesting because this is where our education is going to be defined and, and what skills our, our uh, young students are going to have coming out. And I think a lot of that's going to you know, define where, where chiropractic goes. So I think it's really important that, um, that us as chiropractors um, you know, use our experience to help guide that a, a little bit. I think uh, following on from what Rob is saying, as part of the uh, Royal College Chiropractic Sports Faculty, uh, we've been putting together a, a series of competencies for what we want um, each level of membership to have. Um, but alongside those competencies and doing a bit of research, we were asking questions about um, those who are head of medical, various teams, various elite teams. What do they want out of a prospective employee? What do they want their CV to look like? Um, are they doing regular CPD? What degrees do they have? Are they undertaking any research? Are they doing any reflective um, stuff as well? So how can we um, armour chiropractors to be uh, to meet these standards, um, and these are universal standards um, across the profession, so that if the head of medical or the employer is looking for a chiro or a osteo or a physio, 
what um, unifying courses are those people taking? Are they hitting the grade? And also, are they doing um, reflections, yeah. if that's the right term? Similar to what the GCC expects you to do every year. Yeah. Sports chiropractors should be doing the same in the field, reflecting on what they've been learning. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, let's um, run with that, actually, Mel. Um, so uh, if I could ask each of you your best tip for getting into sports so for uh, our chiropractic listeners students or young chiropractors um, or old you know no offense Rob um, <laughs> um, if you could give one tip for getting into the world of sports for therapists um, what, what would it be uh, Shane I'm gonna start down with you because you just get I'm 16 year or 17 year of practice I learn read every single day. you have to work on your craft not your social media account your influencer work on your your craft you have to be able to make mistakes and learn from them patient won't know a lot of the time it's not like you're grossly going to do something stupid but if you're trying a new rehab technique or trying a new technique that a physio showed you you have to be able to change you shouldn't practice the same way probably even now is if it's six months before a year it should be you should not I, i'd be embarrassed by poor patients i saw when i first graduated and that's yeah. a good thing because i know i've gotten better yeah. Yeah. no I think uh, get involved, uh, particularly at the beginning with volunteering, uh, volunteering in multidisciplinary teams as well, talk to people, network with people, make friends uh, with your colleagues and also putting together your CV, what would someone want your CV to look like? Um, relationships are important but you have to have down on paper what you're doing, what are you doing to better yourself as a chiropractor, particularly in the sports world? You can't just sit there and wait for an opportunity to find you. You have to actively look it, but also, if you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. You've got to back up what you're saying by doing regular CPD, the most important CPD um, for the sports that you're in. Rob? Um, learn the demands of the sport that you're working in. Um, I think it's really, I, I work in, uh, I treat a lot of CrossFit athletes, and I do CrossFit myself, um, and been involved in weightlifting for about 30 years or so, um, or more, because uh, I am old, Dave. <laughs> uh, trying to stay younger, though. Um, but yeah, learn, like if you're going to treat a weightlifter, uh, learn weightlifting. I, I would uh, reiterate what Miles said, volunteer. And, and also for your CV, put voluntary experience on because the biggest thing about sport is that you don't do it for the money. You do it for the love of it. And that means sacrificing your time, you know, giving people, you know, you're not going to get paid <laughs> a lot of the time. Or you're not going to get paid a lot, you know, but, but show up and, and be willing, um, you know. So if you... If you volunteer somewhere, <clears throat> or sorry, if, or if you go to do observations or go to a local team, you know, turn up and like be willing to pitch in. You know, like Shane was saying about physios doing the babysitting. These guys do grunt work. So do you know what? Clean the benches down for them. When they're doing tape up, clean the math up, you know, for them. Take, offer to take their notes. You know, so you don't have to write their notes up at the end of the day. Like, get yourself involved without... I think sometimes we kind of feel like we've got to show what we can do by treating a patient. But actually, what you need to do first is show that you can be a team player and you can work with other people in a team. And that means being a nice person to be around and being a helpful person to be around. So, you know, if they're stressed, offer to do stuff for them that is not professional stuff and they will they will love you they will they will forgive you your technique stuff if you're if you're a good helpful individual to be around um, and and volunteer fantastic well, thank you so much for joining us guys I'm just going to turn to the audience if anyone just quickly has a couple of questions we can put it to the panel if anyone does have anything they'd like to ask any of these fantastic guests hands up what to the panel generally what do you think are the challenges and solutions actually you can think of for, for increasing activity and tissue loading in kids generally. I'm just going to repeat that into the mic. So what do you think of the challenges? Um, sorry, say that again. <laughs> challenges and solutions generally for increasing uh, tissue loading and activity in, in 
pediatrics kids generally these days. Good. Yes. Uh, give them an activity that they enjoy doing and make mm. it play. What's that? One more. Anyone else? Uh, it's free, probably free play in terms of that. Yeah. And then the one thing that the, the Gaelic clubs in Ireland that are doing well, I was talking to a guy from Limerick, uh, they, instead of doing a Gaelic or football training, they instituted a Saturday morning fundamental movement skills. Oh, wow, that's awesome. That's great. And that, and, that's uh, and awesome. the back of it, they got more club members. It paid off. Yeah. The, the one thing they uh, have in, in CrossFit, a, a lot of CrossFit gyms have what's called CrossFit Kids, uh, which there's a little bit of play involved, but they, they get introduced to things like barbells and kettlebells and, and, and things like that. And um, a good mate of mine has kids from about four or five years old all the way up to teens. And uh, yeah, they just have a great time. And mm -hmm. I've had like patients walk in and see CrossFit Kids class going on there. Oh, what's, what's going on there? I think I'm going to bring mm -hmm. in my lad or, or my daughter. You know, so Cross, CrossFit Kids is a really cool program because they get exposed to things that they don't and movements that they don't see in just everyday uh, traditional sports. I think uh, another problem, <clears throat> thinking about this more perhaps bigger picture, is um, people who are overweight or kids who are overweight are more likely to come from lower income areas. What access do they have to exercise? What's the, the physical education like in their schools? What are their parents doing to actively engage their kids in exercise as well? So. <clears throat> you can provide things for children, but if the parents aren't engaged with increasing load to for those kids, it's it's tricky. It's difficult. Question at the back. There was one there. Coming back to my question, <laughs> um, I was going to say if you do have like a patient, fourteen-year-old or an old person just playing golf, for instance, what would be your kind of ideal alternative exercise <coughs> to take part in? So if, if, it was uh, if you do, the question was, if you do have a 14-year-old or a, a young person participating in a singular exercise like golf, what kind of alternative exercise would you recommend they um, go through? And we're all looking at shame. It's three questions. We, one of our, I won't give too much away, but one of our past panellists on the, the golf played Gaelic football and he blew his cruciate. He's fine now, all good. His physio rehabbed him, which is fine. Uh, so, so if they're... If it's golf, it's, it's asymmetrical, it's one side of rotation, it's thousands of millions of balls. So something probably sagittal, running, athletics, not necessarily gymnastics, just something that's kind of straightened back yeah. and forward. Mm. If, you're, if you're a parent, you're scared of them playing rugby or, or maybe go play basketball, help mm. their hands-on skills, or something that's very different, or swimming if it's a little bit... Yeah. So to, to paraphrase that, we're almost looking at the opposite movements that they would that's, normally... That's what I was taking. thinking. Yeah. 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 Something non-rotational. Don't yes. let them go play tennis just because they yeah. Every other sport, have them do some rotational. Yeah. 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 Unless they yeah. can play left-handed and a right-handed yeah. golfer, that'd be quite impressive, <laughs> wouldn't it? Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us today live at the BCA conference. It's a first for us and it's a first for some of you guys as well. So thank you so much. So thank you so much for everyone. <laughs> And thank you so much for joining us. So thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the weekend at the BCA conference. It's been lovely to have a live audience for once. So uh, thank you from us. Thank you, guys. Over and out.